The following resource is by CBC Mokopani. For more resources like this, check out our website at www.christbaptistmokopani.com. We all agree that God is sovereign. But do we really understand what we mean when we say that God is sovereign? We know God rules over everything. God is in control of everything. So how come don't we accept and agree that even times of suffering also falls under God's sovereignty? Why do we complain about suffering as if suffering isn't something ordained by God in His sovereignty? It's so easy to say, yes, God is sovereign. But when suffering hits close to home, then we often ask ourselves questions such as, but why? Why me? Why now? It's easy to agree and accept God's sovereignty when others are the ones suffering. But as soon as we are the ones who have to endure physical, psychological, or spiritual suffering, then we are not so happy about God's sovereignty. How often, when we are faced with suffering, do we ask the following questions? What have I done wrong now? Why is God punishing me? Does God really care about me? Does God really love me? Now, questions such as these indicate that we might not have the right view of God's sovereignty. So many born-again believers struggle to see God's love and His goal with our suffering. So many born-again believers continue to, to hold a view known as divine retribution. And that means that they believe God blesses you when you are obedient and that God punishes you when you are disobedient. And that is simply not biblical correct. It's not the correct view of God. That's not how God works. Remember what James, the half-brother of Jesus, said in his uh, epistle. He says that we should count it all joy all the suffering, all the trials. Well, how can you count suffering as joy? Only when you understand that your suffering is not necessarily a result of something you did or did wrong. But as James puts it, suffering tests one's faith. It produces steadfastness. And for the Christian, it almost always has to do with your sanctification, making you more and more Christ-like. Now, this is key. If we could only start viewing suffering as a tool in God's hand with which He makes us more like Christ and stop complaining about our suffering, then we too will be able to count it all joy. So one question that I want us to ask ourselves today is the very same question 
that Job asked his wife. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Now we all know all too well that life can change in the blink of an eye. Everything goes well, everything is quiet and seems normal. Then, suddenly, without warning, terror strikes. One moment your life is stable, and the next moment your life is shattered. I want to share three testimonies with you. Three testimonies where people's lives changed drastically in a blink of an eye. Now, after I shared the three testimonies, um, then I would like us to look at a very common response to suffering. Unfortunately, a very common response even among us Christians. Now, this response, as we will see, comes as a result of having the wrong view of God. Then after we have briefly looked at the wrong view of God, then we will look at what the Word of God has to say about God's sovereignty in our suffering. That's also the title of today's message. God's sovereignty in our suffering. So let's look at the three testimonies. The first testimony is about a, a very wealthy mega farmer who lived approximately 2,200 years before Christ. He was a blameless and upright man. He, he feared God. He did everything in his power to live a life pleasing to God. God blessed him with a big family. In fact, blessed him with 10 children. They were a close family. They enjoyed each other's company and regularly spent their time together. God has also blessed him with a lot of livestock. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 pairs of cattle, 500 donkeys, and over and above all this, he also had a large workforce. His farming business has been very, very blessed. The children were all doing well and getting along. They had no troubles whatsoever until one day. This particular day, while the children were enjoying a, a meal together, a man came running to the farmer's house and told him that men came and attacked the farm, one of his farms, and they killed all the workers on that farm and also stole all the donkeys and all the cattle. And while this man was still talking, another man came running in. He told the farmer that a fire fell from heaven and killed all the sheep and the workers on the sheep farm. Now just think about this for a second. In a blink of an eye, you lose livestock worth millions of rand. And if that is not bad enough, you lose almost half your workforce worth more than all the livestock in the world. Can't even begin to imagine what that must be like. I mean, how do you deal with something like that? Now, while the former stood there, completely blown away, still trying to figure out, am I dreaming? Is this for real? A 
a third person came running toward him. Sir, sir, the camel farm has been attacked. All your workers have been killed and they also took all your camels. The farmer starts swaying. His throat is so dry he can't even swallow. His vision starts to blur. And the next moment, someone grabs him by the shoulders and screams, Sir, sir, your children! The farmhouse collapsed while all your children were inside. I'm sorry, sir, all your children are dead. Now put yourself in Job's shoes for just a moment. How would you respond to adversities such as this? Would you be able to count it all joy? Would you still believe that God is good? That God is sovereign in your suffering? Just imagine only one of these blows. Job had to endure four of these blows and all four of them in one day. And if that wasn't enough, Job was also struck with boils all over his body. His body literally started rotting. How would you respond to only one of these incidences? How would something like this influence your view of God? Would you be able to count it all joy? Would you be able to accept this kind of suffering? Or would you question God's goodness and His sovereignty? Now the second testimony is a testimony of a lady known as Elizabeth Elliot. Now, she and her husband were both missionaries in the USA. Her husband and four of his friends had a burning desire to go and share the gospel with the Akua Indian tribe in Ecuador. Now this Indian tribe were extremely isolated and was also known to be very, uh, a very cruel uh, Indian tribe. Up to that point, no one has succeeded in reaching this tribe, nor has anyone who attempted to make contact with them got out of the jungle alive. However, Germany's four friends were eager to go and share the gospel, and they felt even stronger about this when all their plans started falling into place. After determining the exact location where this tribe was established, they flew over the area with a small plane and dropped off gifts in an attempt to, to win the tribe's confidence. Now on January 6, 1956, the five men landed their small plane near the area where this tribe lived. And they managed to make contact with one of the men and four women. After some time, the, the, the man and the, the woman left. Germany's friends took off, extremely excited about the door that the Lord had just opened for them to make contact with these people. Two days later, on January 8, Germany's four friends decided to go back and see if they can rest the, uh, win the rest of this tribe's confidence. And since it was a Sunday, they decided that they would have their own little service there where they planned to land, planned to land the plane. While they were busy having their service, they heard the birds around them in the jungle taking off and making noises. A little while later, they could hear people coming closer. 
So one of the men went back to the plane and called their wives on the two-way radio. They were all waiting back at the mission station to hear from their husbands. Very excited, the man told the wives that it seems as if a large group of people were making their way towards them. And he asked the wives to pray that they would be welcomed by these people. He also said that they would make contact again at 4.30 in the afternoon to let them know how it went. 4.30 came, 4.30 went. The radio was silent. The wives tried not to show their concern, but eventually they could not hide their fear any longer and they asked a certain rescue team to go and investigate. On the team's arrival, they found the plane's metal frame and the engine. The rest were burned down to the ground. And as they began searching for the men along the river, they found one, two, three, four bodies lying face down in the water, all of them with spears driven into their backs. A little further down the stream, they also found the fifth body. Now, these five men were brutally murdered, and all they wanted to do was go and share the gospel with these people. Their intentions were pure. They were all young married men with little children. Jim and Elliot's daughter was not even 11 months old when this happened. How would you respond to a situation like this? How would you feel about God's sovereignty? Now the third testimony, something which happened a little less than a year ago, Josh, um, who is one of the elders at Grace Bible Church in Arizona, went on a family trip. And they had a lot of fun riding quad bikes, they went hunting and fishing, and did all kinds of fun things on the farm. His youngest son, Caleb, was only five years old. And for the very first time, he got the opportunity to ride a four-wheeler all by himself. And he did very well. And as one would expect, this little guy was very chuffed with himself. This short holiday was everything the family needed. And they really enjoyed it a lot. The kids had an awesome time. Mommy and Caleb had plenty of time to snuggle. It was almost the perfect family vacation. Now George says that the night before they had to go back home, they decided to start packing and loading some of their luggage onto the pickup so that they could take it um, easy the next morning. All the kids helped carrying bags and so forth, even little Caleb, who his dad says was always such a, a willing little helper. Now in order to make the whole loading process a, a bit easier and faster, Josh decided to park the pickup a bit closer to home. It was quiet outside. He didn't hear any kids, nor did he see any kids. He assumed that they were all back in the house. In Josh's testimony, he says that they suspect that little Caleb must have dropped something in front of that pickup and it happened at the exact moment when Josh pulled the pickup forward and ran over little Caleb.
Now little Caleb passed away within a few minutes. How? How do you deal with something like that? Now, something that I want you to, to, to take note of is that all three of these testimonies, the people who suffered serious loss were all God-fearing people. People who sincerely loved God, served God. People who, from our perspective, were all people who really do not deserve to go through the pain and suffering that they had to go through. And it is at times like these when most people ask questions like, how can a good, merciful and sovereign God allow things like this to happen? Unfortunately, many professing believers question God's sovereignty, God's goodness when suffering befalls them. Now this brings us to our next point, the wrong view of God. The question almost all people ask when they are faced with suffering is, why? Why, Lord? Why did you allow Job to go through all that suffering? Why did you allow those five men who loved you so much, five men who were willing to go places to preach the gospel where others were too afraid to go, why did you allow them to be killed in a, such a horrible way? Why did you allow those women and children to lose their, their husbands and fathers? Why did you, Lord, allow little Caleb to die at such a young age? It doesn't seem fair. Why, Lord? Now, this leads to another question. Is it wrong to ask God why He allowed these things to happen? I don't think asking the question is wrong, but I do think that we ought to be very, very careful with what attitude we ask this question. If we have a wrong view of God, then we will certainly be asking this question with the wrong attitude. And as I said earlier, it is easy to claim, agree and accept that God is sovereign. But to what extent are we comfortable with God's sovereignty? When we are blessed by and through God's sovereignty, then we don't have an issue. But as soon as God, in His sovereignty, allows us to suffer, then we often find it hard to approve of God's sovereign decisions. When you are suffering in one way or another, how do you respond to your suffering? Knowing that God is sovereign over everything. Are we perhaps guilty of compartmentalizing God? Meaning, are we fine with God's sovereign rule over certain areas of our lives, but not every area of our life? You see, if you do not allow God to rule every area of your life, then it says quite a bit about how much you are willing to give up, how serious you are about denying yourself, and how willing you are to take up your cross and follow Christ in His suffering. And so many people think that suffering 
goes hand in hand with disobedience. Or perhaps suffering comes only to those who take the gospel to, to places or people where it's not welcomed. But how many people see and understand that suffering also forms part of our sanctification? How often do you pray? I know I pray this almost every day. Heavenly Father, please make me more and more Christ-like. Help me in my sanctification. But do we truly understand what it is we're asking? Do we understand that often suffering is the instrument with which God forms us and shapes us into the likeness of Christ? Listen to what James says in, in his epistle. James chapter 1 verse 2 through 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, just to illustrate this, if you take a piece of wood, and let's say you decide you want to make a fruit bowl out of this piece of wood. What will have to happen to this piece of wood? Well, it will have to go to the wood lathe. There it will be clamped down. It will spin at a very, very high speed. And then the worker will come with his set of chisels. Start removing pieces of wood while it's clamped down and spinning. Every bit of wood that should not be there will be removed. And it's not fine fluffy dust that's coming off. It's big, big shavings. And once the worker finished using his chisels, then he uses a very coarse sandpaper to smoothen the, the rough surfaces. And as this piece of wood takes shape, it starts looking more and more like the fruit bowl then the finer the sandpaper gets until it's time to apply beeswax and polish it with a soft piece of cloth. But throughout this whole process, that piece of wood is clamped down and spinning at a very high revolution until it looks exactly like the bowl the worker had in mind. You see, we are so far from being Christ-like that God has to work on us. We have to be clamped down. We have to be chiseled. He has to remove everything that is not Christ-like. In the beginning, the whole process with soft wax and fluffy piece of cloth will never work. You do not start with the piece of cloth. That rough piece of wood will rip that cloth to shreds within seconds. No, you start with the chisel, then sandpaper, and then the wax. But you see, the problem is, most people want God to manage their lives as if they are the ones employing Him to manage their lives. They want God to manage their lives according to their terms and conditions. And they also have certain areas that are off limits. Certain areas where they do not want God involved in any way. 
Those areas where they will manage things themselves. Areas where they want certain things to happen a certain way, at a certain time. They want to remain in charge. They want to prescribe the method. And all, as long as God do what they expect Him to do, all is well. And sadly, we are guilty of doing this too. I remember a time in my life where I rebelled against God. A time where I asked God to please explain to me what is going on. Why is this happening? Why are other people so prosperous while I know for a fact that they don't even think about God for a second? They have absolutely no fear for God. They do as they please, but yet it seems as if God is making them so prosperous. But me? I'm trying so hard to live a life pleasing to God, yet I'm suffering. Why don't you make me prosperous too, Lord? Why can't I have what they have? Why do I have to struggle to keep my head above water? And today I'm very ashamed about how I responded to those circumstances. And I realized that the attitude I had was completely wrong. But this just shows you how merciful and gracious God is. I mean, He could have struck me there and then with fire from heaven. But He did not kill me on the spot. He graciously continued working on me. He left me like a fish caught on a hook. I continued to put up a fight for a while longer. I did not accept the fact that God, in His sovereignty, allowed all things in my life to make me more and more Christ-like. I wanted to determine when and how, for how long and where. I wanted to call the shots. I did not understand a thing about God's sovereignty. I didn't understand that God was busy forming me through those circumstances. And as I grew tired of fighting, God pulled me in, removed the hook, and opened my eyes. And as time went by, God brought people into my life who helped me to correct my wrong view of God and His sovereignty, specifically His sovereignty in my suffering. So what was wrong with my view of God? Well, I think understanding God's sovereignty isn't something that is hard to grasp. I think the biggest issue comes from accepting God's sovereignty. The issue is we do not really want to submit to God's sovereignty. We want to remain seated on the throne of our lives. We want God to, to bless us, but we don't want God to bend us. But it doesn't work that way. There is only enough space for one person on that throne. So the only way to become more Christ-like is to submit. Get off your little throne and let God rule over every area of your life. He knows exactly where more chiseling is necessary. He knows where you need more sanding. We just need to learn to trust Him. 
So the reason why we may have an incorrect view of God's sovereignty might be the fact that we don't understand that it means that God gets to decide when, where, how, and how long. And God has access to all areas. If God doesn't rule over every area of your life, then we do not fully grasp what sovereignty means. In order for us to correct our wrong thinking, our wrong view of God and His sovereignty, we have to allow the Word of God to shed some light on this. So let's now move to the third and final point. A biblical view of God's sovereignty. Let's look at what the Bible teaches about the sovereignty of God, and specifically His sovereignty in our suffering. Now firstly, we have to understand that when we say that God is sovereign, then that implies that God ordains everything that takes place. Whether it's good or bad, God ordains everything. You see, if you argue that God does not ordain everything, then you also imply that God is not sovereign over everything. And if God is not sovereign over everything, then God cannot be God. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah wrote in chapter 45, verse 5 through 7, as well as verse 9. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Now listen to the warning in verse 9. Who to the one who quarrels with his maker? An earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth. Will the clay say to the potter, What are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, He has no hands. It's clear from this portion of scripture that God causes both well-being and calamity. However, this does not mean that God is the author of sin. But it does mean that God, in His sovereignty, allows bad things to happen. So if God allows calamity and suffering, then it clearly means that God is literally, He rules sovereignly over everything. Over well-being and calamity. Now, this reminds me of what Joseph said to his brothers when they stood before him in Egypt. In Genesis 50, uh, verse 19 and 20, Joseph says, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many alive. Now you all remember what happened to Joseph. You remember the suffering that he had to endure. 
But just imagine all the pain he had to deal with. Just imagine what it must be like to be sold to strangers by your own family. Imagine what his father Isaac had to go through. But shockingly, listen to his response. Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? In other words, do not be afraid, you who caused me so much pain and suffering. For who am I to judge you? Who am I to question God's sovereignty? This means that Joseph had a very good understanding of God's sovereignty. He understood that even though his brothers intended to cause him harm and pain, God allowed it and had a purpose with it. And sounds a lot like Romans 8 and 28, doesn't it? And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. All things, all things must then also include suffering. Or does the text say, we know that God causes only some things to work together for good? No. All things, including suffering, pain, sickness, losses, all things. You see, we need to get to a point where we accept that God is sovereign over everything. We need to get to a point where we know for sure that God is good no matter what our circumstances. We need to understand that God causes even the bad things that happens to work together for the good of those who He has called as His own children. Now let's quickly go back to the story of Job. Now I want you to turn with me to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. I'm going to start reading from verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to the face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. 
So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. There are three things that I, I want you to take note of. Firstly, God was impressed with Job. According to the text, Job was a one-of-a-kind type of person. Blameless, God-fearing, avoiding all evil. And secondly, notice that God was the one protecting Job and everything he owned. God was the one responsible for blessing Job's work. God was the one causing Job's business to grow. And thirdly, we see that God actually gave Satan authority to bring calamity over Job. In other words, calamity will not strike anyone unless God authorizes it. And also Satan cannot do what he pleases. He remains a servant. He can only do what God permits. God determines the boundaries. So just to recap, calamity strikes blameless, God-fearing people too. God in His sovereignty blesses His children, but God also in His sovereignty allows calamity to strike His children. Now listen to what is written in Job chapter 2 verse 3, the last part of that verse. Although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Now let's just think for a moment about what this implies. Although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. This means that God did not punish Job because he did something wrong. Job actually had nothing to do with the cause or the purpose of his suffering. Job hasn't done anything wrong, yet God allowed it. So we need to understand that God sometimes allows suffering in our lives for reasons that doesn't have anything to do with us. God allows it for His own purposes and His own glory. And it's not every day that we look at God's sovereignty from this perspective. Nevertheless, it's true. And what also remains true is that God is God and God is always right and God is always good. Always. It is exactly here where we have to be very, very careful how we view God. Because doubting God's goodness is a portal we must avoid at all times. Listen carefully to what is written in Romans 9 verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? We can also put it like this. Will the thing molded say to the molder, why did you allow this calamity to strike me? Why must I suffer like this? 
Why do you allow whatever? You can complete the sentence. I know that this is not easy to swallow. Not easy to accept. But it still is true. It is what the Word of God teaches us. We must be careful not to form our own God where we decide which attributes work uh, for us and which attributes doesn't work for us. It is not for us to decide this is how God should do things, that is what He must allow, and this is how He should work things out. No. If that is the case, then we are doing exactly what Israel did back in the desert when they made the golden calf. If we form our own image of God, then we are not worshipping the God of the Bible. We need to be very, very careful. Our view of God, our view of His sovereignty, even our view of our suffering must line up with the Word of God. Otherwise, we will be in great, great danger of sinning against God. Now, without a doubt, we see that the book of Job confronts the suffering man with the following. God is in control of all things. God is in control of sickness, suffering, even death. But God is involved in a different way. Where Satan's aim is always to destroy people, God's goal is sanctification, salvation, and the preservation of His elect. So if there's one thing that I want you to remember from this message, then it's this. Even calamity, suffering, and whatever other circumstances you can come up with, they are all serving God's purposes. Throughout all the suffering, God shows us mercy. God remains right and God always remains good. Now in conclusion, what will be the application of what we looked at this morning? Firstly, we have to realize that Suffering also strikes God-fearing people. Nobody is exempted. Nobody is free from suffering. Secondly, we must remember when suffering strikes, God has a specific purpose with that suffering. There's a reason behind all of it. As James put it, count it all joy. And you will only be able to do that if you understand that God is always good and that He will work all things out for good. God is always fair and that whatever suffering we experience, to those who love God, suffering forms part of our sanctification. Thus, God is using that to make us more and more Christ-like. Thirdly, we must remember that we are mere creatures who have been created by the Creator. We can't and we should not question God's motives. Nor do we have to know why God does what He does. God is not obligated to explain anything. So, let God be God and let us remain on our knees before His throne of grace 
Let's trust Him to use whatever way He deems necessary to make us more and more Christ-like. I want to close off with three quotes. Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Elizabeth Elliot wrote, To be a follower of the crucified means sooner or later a personal encounter with the cross. And the cross always entails loss. The deepest spiritual lessons are not learned by His letting us have our way in the end, but by His making us wait, bearing with us in love and patience until we are able to honestly pray what He taught His disciples to pray. Thy will be done. George Kelso wrote the following after his little boy passed away. Our great God has provided for our biggest need in the forgiveness of our sins through the death of His own Son. With that precious truth in mind, we dare not question His love. How could we? Rather, we cling to Him. We know God is sovereign and there is no better place for us than where He has us today. We trust, we yield, we mourn, we bless His name. And though our tears fall almost constantly, we fall on our faces and we worship. Blessed is the name of our Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Almighty and Sovereign God, Please help us to grasp these truths and also to accept them. Please be gracious to us and carry us through times of suffering. And above all else, let your name be glorified through our suffering. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.